Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Michael Rayner is a managing director with Deloitte LLP, where he is part of the team working to develop and implement Deloitte's two-track response to the global climate crisis. The first track focuses on reducing and eventually eliminating the firm's carbon emissions, while the second track comprises a portfolio of efforts designed to mobilize larger ecosystems of organizations, commercial enterprises, NGOs, governments, etc., to generate an impact on the scale of the problem. His book, The Strategy Paradox, published in 2007, was named by Strategy Plus Business as one of its top five picks in strategy, and Business Week named it one of that year's 10 best business books. Michael co-authored The Innovator's Solution with the late Clayton Christensen and collaborated extensively with Christensen over the years. Another of his books, The Innovator's Manifesto, released in 2011, became a Canadian bestseller, which prompted the Financial Times to call Rayner one of the most articulate and interesting of strategists. He's also published extensively in a wide variety of journals, including Harvard Business Review, The Strategy Management Journal, Strategy Plus Leadership, and many other leading publications. In this session, Michael breaks down what disruptive innovation really is and why so many people get it wrong. He describes what it takes to overcome the innovation dilemma, and he gives us a scary prognostication about the future, one we should all be taking seriously. All right, Michael, thank you for being here with us. Just to get to know you a little bit personally, I'd like you to finish the sentence for me. (laughs) If you really knew me, you know that. I value precision. I think it's both cause and consequence of why I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in philosophy. So just a very careful use of language. And I hope, well, it's what I aspire to, right? I aspire to a very careful and consistent use of language and concepts. I find that helps me make sense of a world that seems to resist at times being made sense of. I can see how that would have led you to strategy through the precision of language and philosophy. You are an expert of many things. This is a podcast around strategy. So I like to start off with asking everyone, and everyone seems to have a different answer to this. What's your definition of strategy? Sure. So I think of strategy as exploiting trade-offs to be different from your competitors. That's a definition clearly that doesn't take into account the way in which the word is used colloquially. That doesn't say anything about military strategy, for example. It doesn't talk about strategy as a plan or a way to get things done. So I'm deliberately circumscribing it, talking about it in a relatively narrow sense. So within the context of business and competitive markets, I think of strategy in terms of exploiting trade-offs to be different. And I find that more helpful when I push it up against the way I think about innovation, which is innovation is about breaking trade-offs to be better than your competition. So those two constructs together, I find much more powerful than trying to define either one of them in isolation. Interesting. Can you tell me what you mean by trade-offs? I think the example over the last year has become less salient, but nevertheless, I think quite intuitive, which is the hotel business. In the hotel business, there has not been, in my view, a lot of innovation, as I understand it. There is an enormous amount of strategy. So that the defining feature of hotels has tended to be the delivery of ever more finely tuned combinations of service, location, and the concomitant price point that comes with that. 
So you have high-end hotels like Ritz and the Four Seasons at one end. You have, in scare quotes, low-end hotels like Motel 6 at the other. And to ask the question, which of those is better, is to kind of miss the point. They provide very different solutions. And the reason they provide very different solutions is that no one's really broken the trade-off between cost and quality in the hotel space. If you want 800 square feet of living space in midtown Manhattan, there's only one way to get that. And it's expensive. If you want to provide really high level service at three in the morning, right? I, I just flew in from Singapore and boy, are my arms tired. And you need to get your suit pressed. That's expensive because you have to have people awake and paid and skilled. And there's no way to break that trade. off. So those are the trade offs between the level of service and assets put at a customer's disposal and what it costs to provide that. So that's how I think about strategy. That's how I think about trade-offs. And so strategy is about deciding where in that space you are going to live. You are exploiting trade-offs to be different from your competition. Is cost always one side of those trade-offs? I think so. I think about cost and quality, but that's a term of convenience. The performance or the quality of a solution is necessarily a hyperplane. That's a multi-dimensional construct. Cost is always part of that and a defining part of that. And then the very different product markets that are out there are defined by the various dimensions of performance that are relevant in that market. If you think about, so what's innovation, you could look at something like Airbnb and say, you know what, that smells like an innovation to me because they have broken one dimension or a number of dimensions of the performance profile where now all of a sudden I can get 800 square feet of living space in midtown Manhattan for a lot less than the eight or $900 a night that I would pay at the existing high-end hotels because they're making an aftermarket in an otherwise idle asset. And how about that? Now all of a sudden I can get it for $300 a night instead of 800 Because the opportunity cost of that asset is Bingo. to zero. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that now all of a sudden that smells like an innovation because they've broken a fundamental trade-off. Now they're not just different, they're better. Very nice way to think about it, an actionable way to think about it. What got you interested in strategy? Should I tell you the truth or give you an answer that makes me look good? <laughs> I'm sure it's the same. I, uh, I finished undergrad and couldn't bring myself to go to law school. So I got a job for a couple of years and discovered that business was a thing and went back, got my MBA. In the process of doing that, discovered two things. First, that you could actually take a doctorate in business. How about that? So spent a couple of years in a consulting firm and then went back and did my doctorate at the Harvard Business School. And back to where you started the conversation around precision, being very careful and precise in your use of language is old hat in the law profession. It felt to me like it was relatively new and an opportunity to be differentiated in the sphere of thinking about business problems. And that's really what I've tried to hang my hat on. Anybody who's run into some of the work that I've done in, for example, the discussion around disruptive innovation in particular may well appreciate the focus that I put on using that term disruptive innovation very carefully and very precisely. Yes. And I think the meaning of disruptive innovation has permutated and people use it imprecisely. And I think that comes at a cost. A colleague of mine pointed this out to me once. He said, you know, you said something that stuck with me, which is that if nobody picked nits, the world would be overrun with nits. So I I don't apologize for that. But my hope is that it's more than that, that using the term disruptive innovation more carefully and precisely actually gives it more power, not less, and makes it more useful 
as I say, this is not medieval philosophy. We're trying to figure out how many angels dance on the head of a pin. These are distinctions that I think matter in a very practical way. What would you say is the primary distinction that people get wrong when they misuse the term disruptive innovation? The late, now late Clay Christensen and I had a paper back in 2015 with Rory McDonald, What is Disruptive Innovation? And the claim that we made there is that it seemed to us that people talked about disruptive innovation as if it were describing an outcome rather than a process. And so people say this is disruptive when it has you know, revolutionized an industry. So you're disruptive as a consequence of your impact on an industry, rather than you are disruptive as a consequence of the way in which you have attempted to have an impact. And that's a critically important distinction, because what it means is that disruptive innovations are not necessarily successful. It's possible to pursue a disruptive path and fail. If a disruptive innovation were necessarily connected with a specific outcome, then it's no longer a falsifiable proposition. It's not a theory anymore. And then the judger of whether something's disruptive, it can be... It can only be done post hoc, right? You only know if you're disruptive when the game's over. Right. And that makes it actually useless yeah. as a guiding theory for deciding what to do. Great point. So let's talk a little bit more about your work. You've written many papers and you've done a lot of work within Deloitte as well. You've written three books, Strategy Paradox, Three Rules, Innovators Manifest. What are you most known for? What's the concept or idea or framework that's been most adopted? My hope is that to the extent that anything I've done lives on, it's what we talked about before, this notion that strategy is exploiting constraints, innovation is breaking them. That's a definition that I have found in the work that I've done with people that tends to resonate, especially people with engineering backgrounds. They hear that and they very often find that quite clarifying and helpful. And so if I were able to nominate something that I've done that sticks, it would be that. What do strategists need to know about your collection of work? If we look at the three rules, Innovator Manifesto, mm -hmm. Strategy Paradox, that's about integrating strategy, innovation, uncertainty. How do those come together? I forget who said it, and I really should not forget because I've looked it up half a dozen times and I keep forgetting. <laughs> Life is lived forward, but understood backward. So I didn't plan it this way. But as I look back, I would say that the three rules is my attempt to say something that contributes to how we think about strategy. So when you are faced with the need to make a trade-off, what trade-offs should you make? And so the three rules say that the trade-offs that are systematically associated with superior profitability over the long term are better before cheaper and revenue before cost. And after that, nothing else matters. Hence the third rule. There are no other rules. And I think those are important observations. Better before cheaper says that you should compete on value, not price. That is a falsifiable proposition. There are all kinds of companies who compete very successfully on price. And very often, companies are faced with that challenge. In the face of a competitive threat, they not infrequently turn to the price lever to try and preserve their position. And what the work in the three rules suggests is, no, don't pull that lever. Fight it. When the data are ambiguous, indeed, especially when the data are ambiguous, you should focus on finding new ways to create value rather than pulling the price lever competing on price. Revenue before cost says that when you want to drive profitability, don't try and differentiate yourself on cost versus your competition. You should drive revenue either through a price premium or increased volume. Again, a falsifiable proposition. Lots of organizations spend a lot of time figuring out how to manage down their cost base. And the three rule says that's fine. I'm not arguing for high cost, but I'm saying that your competitive advantage should not depend on low cost. That is a much steeper hill to climb, and you'll have a better chance at success by pulling the revenue lever, not the cost lever. 
So that's the strategy discussion. The innovation discussion, we've already touched on that. How do you go about breaking trade-offs? I think disruptive innovation is one of, if not the most reliable process you can use when it comes to figuring out which trade-offs to break and how to break them. And then finally, the universe remains inscrutably uncertain. So how do you cope with that? My contribution, if it is one to that space, lives in the strategy paradox work, which is a way of thinking, I hope, practically about strategic options. How do you build flexibility into large, complex organizations that very often are expressly built not to be flexible? They are built to be able to execute a particular approach to a market. And so how do you cope with that trade-off? If you're an aircraft carrier and you say, gee, I'd really like to be nimble, and the response is get rid of the flight deck, well, that'll make you nimble, (laughs) but you won't be much of an aircraft carrier anymore. And so the strategy paradox is an attempt to try and square that circle. Let's talk a little bit about how your work now fits into that impact on climate as a cost that's an externality that's not incorporated into the calculations, the strategic and innovation calculations of some corporations. That's kind of how I see it. Tell us a little bit about how the climate crisis should be incorporated into these calculations. Yeah, wow. Part of me thinks these days that really the climate question is the only thing that matters. It's not something to incorporate in what we do. It's something to constrain and override pretty much everything we do. To call it an externality, I think is entirely accurate. And what that means, as I've come to think about it, is that really it sits outside of market forces. And the view that somehow, you know, well, let's just price carbon and that'll fix it. There's a fair bit of work that's been done that would suggest it's really not that kind of problem. If the market could solve the climate crisis, we wouldn't have a climate crisis. And so in a lot of ways, the tools and frameworks that I've spent my professional life thinking about and trying to build are probably not up to the challenge. So for example, in strategy, what matters is your relative position versus the relevant competition. So if I'm a hotel, go back to that example, I compare myself to other hotels. And what I worry about is how I stack up against those other hotels. When it comes to the climate crisis, it's not a relative game anymore. We need to hit zero carbon by 2050, and we need to hit 50% reductions within the next 10 years, or the planet may not be able to support complex multicellular life anymore. And and feel free to ask me why I think that, because that's yeah. actually... Yeah, expl- <laughs> yeah please. Uh, yeah, if you can provide us the yeah the, the scary rationale for that. Yeah, and that's the other part of it, which is that I'm of a mind that although there is obviously and appropriately increasing awareness and concern about the climate crisis, I continue to believe that for the most part, we have really not come to terms with the urgency and severity of the problem we face. And I've come to think about it as follows. If you look back at the five major mass extinctions in the history of multicellular life on Earth over the last 500 million years, there have been five big ones. The worst of them was the Permian extinction about 250 million years ago, known as the Great Dying. 96% of all species on the planet went extinct. took about 40 million years for biodiversity to reestablish itself. That mass extinction, like most mass extinctions, was triggered by carbon pollution, by relatively rapid and significant changes in the concentration of atmospheric carbon. Hmm. We are changing the concentration of atmospheric carbon 200,000 times faster than the rate that led to the Permian extinction. Wow. The excess carbon that triggered the Permian was on the order of around two gigatons a year. Current carbon emissions 
are about 11 gigatons a year. There's a paper by a fellow at MIT on the carbon cycle and climate catastrophes who suggests that we are on the cusp of having crossed the line into that territory where the feedback loops kick in such that a mass extinction becomes inevitable. And when you're an apex predator, which is what we are, you're like the first to go. As a result, I look at all of this and say, I mean, to talk like I'm talking is to be dismissed as a tinfoil hat-wearing lunatic. Well, my, well, my question was, are we beyond the point of maybe. Yeah, maybe. But so there's a choice, right? You can either give up or you can try. As F. Scott Fitzgerald put it, it must be possible to see the situation as hopeless and yet be determined to make it better. We could just say, to hell with it, let's party. That's not an irrational response. That's not the one I'm adopting. So I will choose to try. And the work that I'm doing at Deloitte is part of Deloitte's purpose office. Mm -hmm. And we have a team that is dedicated to working with larger ecosystems of players to try and mobilize collective action to do something that matters. And we try not to make the mistake of comparing ourselves to what other firms and other organizations are doing. We try to compare ourselves to our ability to act and the magnitude of the challenge we face. So we're not using a strategic framework, which says, what is our relative position versus the relevant competition? It's how much are we doing compared to what we can? And how does that stack up against the nature of the problem? Which is, I think, a very different way of framing both the challenge we face and the actions we take to address it. Yeah, I think the value chain paradigm and the competitive paradigm versus the ecosystem paradigm has you behave very differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of our listeners here are looking to make that shift, cause that shift within their companies. And so could you tell us what can a company do to start engaging productively in whatever ecosystem is relevant to them in order to contribute to this common cause? Yeah, I mean, I say different things with different degrees of ferocity, right? Based on the data I have to support the claim. So when we talk about three rules, I will say things with greater conviction than I'll say this. So we'll put this in the category of one person's opinion. I think... The thing to do as an organization is to understand that the various constraints that we think guide and limit our behavior, we very often treat them far too seriously. So if you think about civil society, just as an individual and the way in which we behave as individuals, our behaviors are not determined by legal sanction. We don't look at the laws that constrain our behavior and run right up to the line of what the law allows. Because if we all did that, civil society would collapse. And I think corporations now need to start behaving in much the same way. So we look at it and say, well, I can't invest money and time and effort in climate issues because that limits my profitability. Well, profitability is not something you optimize. It's a constraint, arguably. You have to be profitable enough to continue to exist as an organization, but then you have to do all kinds of other things that operate short of those constraints in order to be a functioning member of a civil society as an organization. Yep. We have, as we mentioned a moment ago, right? we have this problem because in competitive commercial markets, organizations repeatedly run right up to the limits of what the law allows, a la Milton Friedman, and that has dumped us in the problem that we're in. And in the same way that you cannot write laws to prescribe how we must behave as individuals, as moral, functioning, responsible human beings in civil society. You cannot write a set of laws that will result in an outcome that results in a sustainable planet. You can't do it because every set of laws can be gained. 
it relies fundamentally on individuals, whether those individuals be people or corporations, to police their own behavior and to act in ways that are consistent with outcomes that we all desire. So it's not regulation. As I said, I did yep. put that in the category of how I've come to think about it, because now I'm making a moral and an ethical argument, not an empirical one. We're almost out of time with you, unfortunately, but it's so fascinating to dig in, to look at what those leverage points might be. And I, I agree, it's not just the market. It's not just capitalism. It's not just regulation. It's not just society or community. It's probably a combination of many of those. That's right. I mean, again, the analogy I draw is just to how we behave as individuals. We worry about our economic situation. We worry about what the laws allow. We worry about what it means to be a good person. And we constrain our behaviors as a result of those beliefs. And organizations need to do the same thing because what we've discovered is that when they behave exclusively with an eye to profit maximization within the constraints as defined by regulation and law, we end up in the mess we're in. I think that's a perfect message to end on. And hopefully that's the beginning of a question that will provoke our listeners to explore their behaviors and their organization's behaviors and what role they play. So thank you so much for being here with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.